0: Hello and welcome to the Lisa Congdon Sessions, a podcast for creative folks about living and working with more intention, curiosity, and joy. I'm your host, Lisa Congdon. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 27 of the Lisa Congdon Sessions. I'm so excited today to welcome back to the podcast artist, printmaker, surface designer, writer, educator, dog mom to Franny, and my best friend in the world, Jen Hewitt. Today, Jen and I talk about her latest book, This Long Thread, Women of Color on Craft, Community, and Connection, published by Roost Books late last year. Through this book, Jen celebrates and honors the diverse contributions of people of color in the craft community and explores the personal, political, and creative potential of textile arts and crafts. Jen is one of a few prominent women of color in the fiber arts community, and this book is her direct response to the need to highlight diverse voices. The book features interviews, essays, and profiles, and features a diverse spectrum of race, age, region, cultural identity, education, and economic class. In this episode, we talk about Jen's journey in the craft community as a woman of color, especially after the racial reckoning of 2020, why this book is important, and how it might be different than what you might expect. We also talk about some of the things that Jen learned when she was writing the book, why joy is an important element in the connection between women of color and craft, and so much more. I love talking to Jen and being her friend because she is equal parts frank, smart, funny, and compassionate. Jen and I talk nearly every day, but it's really fun for me to put my interviewer hat on and ask her questions about the intersection between her intellectual, creative, and emotional processes. I hope you enjoy this interview. Jen Hewitt, so glad to have you with us today. This is my, let's see, second interview with you. You are the first person to have two interviews on the Lisa Congdon sessions. (laughs) Honored. (laughs) Well, and if you don't know this, Jen and I are BFFs for many years. So of course this would happen and it probably won't be the last time you're on this podcast. So today our conversation is focusing on your latest book, This Long Thread, Women of Color on Craft, Community, and Connection. So this book is just as much about women of color in community and connection as it is about women of color in craft. And I want to focus on that in our conversation today. So first, I wanted to start off by having you tell your own story of how you became a craftsperson and the legacy of craft community and connection in your own family and community growing up.
1: Oh, gosh. I can't think of a time when I wasn't practicing some sort of craft. It started when I was a child and my dad is a hobby carpenter and woodworker. And he let me make things in the garage alongside him. And the first thing I remember making is a dollhouse out of just scraps of wood and nails and glue. And I was probably five years old and I was telling the story to people when I was older and they said, your father let you use a hammer and nails when you were five? And I said, yep, his idea, his attitude was if I hit myself, if I made a mistake, it would be the only time I did it and I would move on and learn from it. And I still hit myself with a hammer, but, you know, I I don't remember ever injuring myself. But it was this sense of exploration and play that was really a big part of my childhood. And then I moved into textile arts through sewing and crochet when I was probably 10 years old and I was in Girls Club, like Boys and Girls Club, except this was like a fancy one run by the junior league (laughs) and I learned how to sew there using a sewing machine and a lot of it actually was fairly intuitive to me spinning the bobbin putting the fabric through starting and finishing stitches like it was something that I think because I had that background in making things by hand I just kind of knew like how to how to make things so they wouldn't fall apart but also, all around me were people who sewed. So my granny sewed, although she was a full-time teacher, and she worked in special ed, so she was just always busy. But sewing was kind of her hobby, and I remember her and my Auntie Net, and my Auntie Ding one year making black Raggedy Ann and Andy dolls to sell. And I still have them. I don't know where they are. They, they're in a box somewhere that got packed up when I moved. And then my Auntie Ming, whose daughters I went to elementary school with and high school with, I would go home with them after school every day because they live walking distance from my school. And my auntie Ming, who is also profiled in the book by her grandchild, she was a nurse and she would knit and crochet while watching Guiding Light. So we would all sit around and watch Guiding Light after we'd gone for afternoon swims because this was Los Angeles. And she could also make clothes. She could sew a dress for you just by looking at you and like taking a couple measurements. And before you knew it, she would be whipping out like some beautiful garment that she had just sewn over a couple of days that was beautifully finished. And so that's, that's really who I grew up with. That's what I grew up surrounded by. And it took me quite a while to start sewing on my own. I think I was maybe in my thirties when I started sewing and I never looked back once I started sewing, as you know, I kept sewing. I kept on sewing. I sewed clothes. I'm working on curtains right now. I started sewing bags. I used to sell the things that I sewed. I wouldn't recommend it unless you want to do production sewing. And sewing, I started printing at the same time. So started sewing and screen printing at the same time and combined my love of both of those things and started selling bags that I had created out of my screen printed fabric. And of course, that led into a whole different world of designing fabric for other people to use, teaching classes. You know, I'm now quilting in addition to sewing my own clothes. So I I do a little bit of everything.
0: I love that. And it's part of like why we're kindred spirits because once we touch something or touch some part of something, we want to do all of it or at least try all of it to see if we enjoy it. So, on the surface, this book is a book of inspiring stories and experiences of working through struggle. But if that's all folks take away, they're missing something. So this book is about so much more, and I want to talk about that. So what's what's this book really about on a deeper level for people who, who might think, oh, a book about women of color and craft, like it must be so inspiring, which it is. But it's about so much more than that.
1: It is. And I'll also just make a slight correction here. I know that women is in the title of the book and the book was named really before I started speaking to non-binary folks. So there actually are a few non-binary folks in the book. So when I talk about the book, I say women and non-binary people of color, even though I know it's in the title, you know, whatever. And it was actually Chanel Wu who pushed back on that and really started me down a rabbit hole of learning more. (laughs) And my Auntie Ming's grandchild also is non-binary. And so it's, I wanted to make sure that I was as inclusive as possible once I started to understand what inclusivity means in terms of gender expression.
0: Yeah, I love that. And also, Chanel, you, once they pushed back, you said, hey, you know, would you write an essay about that? And so not only were you open to their feedback, you wanted to include them in the book.
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. Because I felt like it wasn't something that I could write about personally on a, on a thoughtful, educated, heartfelt point of view that I think was valid, you know, and Chanel could write about their own experience. And that was way more meaningful than me filtering it, which actually is a good segue into what the book really is about. And one of the reasons that I wanted to do interviews instead of doing third person or interviews and then I write about the folks, it's because I wanted it to be unfiltered. I wanted people to talk about their lives from their point of view. And I wanted them to talk about whatever they felt was important with regard to their journey as artists or as craftspeople. And I also wanted it to be very much about our lived experiences, and our day-to-day. Wendy Chen, who I also interviewed for the book, because she was in the book, she got an early copy that gets sent out. And she read it in like eight hours, stayed up until four in the morning. And I got an email from her and she said that what she felt the book did so well was allow the people of color to just be not to have it be about their lives and their stories to be about something greater. It wasn't about coming in with an agenda, although certainly I had an agenda, but I allowed folks to just just tell their stories and just talk about their lives. And in so many ways, I feel that as a woman of color, I'm not always allowed to tell my story and have it just be about my story. It always has to be about the bigger picture or about being a person of color and what that means in this world instead of, hey, and this is not my way of saying, like, we should all be colorblind because I certainly talk about that in the book. It's about saying my life experience is just as valid and just as important and just as ordinary and just as extraordinary as most other people's. And I really, really, really wanted the book not to be about trauma and struggle for the sake of talking about trauma and struggle. Certainly we talk about trauma and struggle because I think everybody has had some level of at least struggle. But it's not the means to an end. It's not the whole story. It's
0: just part of a
1: narrative.
0: Later on, I want to talk more about, about that very thing. Before we go there, this book is really for women of color, first and foremost, as opposed to a book to educate white women about the experience of women and non-binary folks of color. So talk about why that lens and goal was important for you and how it makes this book special.
1: Oh, gosh. Well, I was just tired of... (laughs) of being the only person of color in all of these events, right, like go to a craft event and a lot of times people would say, okay, we need to diversify it and I would be the one asked or invited and it's like there's a whole world of other people out there, you're just not looking that hard, you're choosing the person with a large social media following. That said, I wanted to kind of create a community in a weird way in a book, talk about community. I wanted us to see each other in this way where we were the only ones that were being featured. We were not the diversity. We were not the people being added on to round something out, that the focus of the book was really about us, for us, which doesn't mean the book isn't interesting and accessible to white readers, because I certainly think it is, and I've gotten lots of great feedback there too. But my primary audience was other people who... Look like me, who maybe have had similar experiences or who haven't, who maybe have felt excluded from the craft world and the craft industry, or maybe who haven't. But I wanted this broad world of us to have a place where we could tell our stories. And so I didn't want to shy away from difficult conversations, to filter conversations and discussions about racism. For example, Vanessa Vargas Wilson, who talks about. The cops being called on her husband in Paducah, Kentucky, because they were staying at an Airbnb and then the white neighbors called the cops on him. That was a really frank conversation. And I didn't want that to have to be a conversation that I filtered or watered down or did any explaining of for a white audience that maybe didn't get it. Like, we could state what had happened. And many audiences, particularly many black folks and brown folks, will understand Automatically, that experience and why it's so harrowing in a way that a white audience maybe wouldn't. And that also really played into how I conducted the interviews and how I allowed everybody to review their interview and cut things out that they didn't want included because it ended up making them feel too vulnerable. Because if this was a book about us, I wanted it to be seen through our lens and I didn't want. To hurt any people of color in the process of making this book. That was really important to me, too.
0: Yeah. We all remember what happened in the summer of 2020, George Floyd was murdered and the country was engaged in some woke Olympics. You talk about the use of colonialist language many white folks use, including the word, quote, discovery, to talk about following and in some cases hiring artists and crafters of color as part of doing, quote, the work of anti-racism. And you argue rightly that women of color, men of color, non-binary folks of color have been artists and makers and crafters for time immemorial. So how did that experience, and I know because we're friends and you talked about it openly, you gained like 2,000 new followers that week that everything sort of exploded on the internet. And I think on the surface, you know, some white folks might think, oh, isn't that great? But it was a mixed bag for you. So I'm curious if you could share how that experience impacted both how you approached this book, because you were already working on this book when that happened. So I'm wondering if it impacted that at all and how it impacted your art practice and business and life, both then and now.
1: Hmm. I think the book was almost fully baked by then. I was finishing up the edits for that summer of 2020. One white woman emailed me to tell me about a new artist she had just discovered whose work I should definitely check out. Very powerful stuff that she had found out about through a very popular knitting blog. And I think the artist was Carrie Mae Weems. If you don't know who Carrie Mae Weems is, that's okay. But also Carrie Mae Weems is like a giant, <laughs> but not only black artists, like she's one of the most famous living artists, <laughs> right? And I responded just saying like, I'm really uncomfortable with the fact that you felt the need to email me about this artist. She is incredibly well known, not just as a black artist, but as an artist in general. And this just goes to show that, you think you're discovering something. And I didn't say it quite like that, but in reality, this is a person whose body of work has existed and thrived prior to your discovery of it. And so, yes, I was getting tagged in lots of stuff where white artists were saying like, follow Jen Hewitt. You should check out her work. And I'd certainly got a boost in sales, which was great. But Lisa, you and I are in a diversity, equity, and inclusion group. And diversity in many ways is the easiest thing to achieve. Equity and inclusion are much harder. Diversity is just getting your numbers up. And it's certainly a start, but it's not the end of the work. Equity and inclusion are much harder to do, but those should be the end goal. Anyway, so I felt like this was a huge jump in diversity. So a lot of folks were diversifying their feeds. And by folks, I mean white folks. But I'm not sure it really led to any equity or inclusion, right? (laughs) It was a momentary boost in money by all means. And certainly I am one of the artists who was lucky enough where companies were like, oh, we need to diversify who we're working with. And I certainly had great projects come on because of that. But let's talk about what this means longer term. Is it enough to just buy from an artist of color, from a Black artist? No, it's not, especially when you're going back into your groups, your knitting group or your quilting guild and the same old structures exist there. So, you know, and COVID was going on at the same time, so I have not been out as much publicly. I haven't been going to shows. I didn't go to quilt market. I'm not teaching as much or at all, really. So some of the weird microaggressions that I write about in the book just haven't been happening as much because I'm not out in the world. And I know you asked me a question and I've lost track of what the question
0: was. (laughs) I'm just curious, like how that experience of going through that, that summer has impacted your practice and your business and your life. Like, you know, not just then, but like, how did it change you or change, you know, how you approached what you do?
1: Hmm. Well, I'll be honest and say I've gotten a lot more vocal to companies that I won't work with about the reasons why I won't work with them. Same with guilds and organizations where I don't see them really making a concerted effort towards anything more than diversity, that the equity and the inclusion parts aren't included. And so I will let them know. And I think In some ways, some organizations are more receptive to that message than they would have been, or at least they pretend to be more receptive to that. So that definitely has changed. I think in terms of business, I certainly did get a boost from that summer. So the business has actually had two very good years in terms of work and sales. So that's been fantastic. But you know, I don't know that much else has changed for me because again, I was here and doing this work before 2020, and I'm here and I'm doing this work in 2022. I might have a slightly larger audience, and I've certainly had national partnerships that allow me to continue to grow my business and find new audiences. But I'm still me. I'm still that person. I'm maybe just a bit more outspoken than I already was, and I certainly was outspoken then.
0: Yeah. And the world hasn't changed. So you're still living in the same world. Exactly. (laughs) It's only been two years, Lisa. (laughs) So you include so many different folks in the book from people who are well-known like you to people who are hobby artists and everyone in between you touched on this earlier, but I wanna go a little deeper here. Why did it feel important to you to include such a wide range of women and non-binary folks in the book? Clearly this book isn't a collection of stories about how to quote, be a successful crafter of color. This isn't the like model minority narrative that white people love. That was an intentional choice. So talk more about that.
1: I think because it's easy to look at a handful of people and say, those are the ones. Those are the special people, you know, they're the ones who we need to get to talk to our groups or to write the books or to teach the classes. When in reality, we exist at all different levels of skill, we all have different tastes, we create different things. And I didn't want it to be just about the people who are already established. And I also didn't want it to be about people who are necessarily making money from their work. You know, a lot of, we talked about, or wrote about in one of the chapters, somebody was saying, well... I don't know why we don't have any women of color in our quilting group. Is it because women of color just don't like to join these groups? And I was like, no, it's just they don't want to join your group. (laughs) (laughs) Right? I didn't say it like that. But, you know, folks like to talk about how hard it is to find quality candidates of color for a school. And it actually isn't. It's just that we limit where we look and how we look and how we communicate. And so there certainly are hobbyists who would love to join a group. Maybe they don't know about a group or have had enough experiences with microaggressions within groups. So they're not going to join anymore. And also they're like just all around you. Right. And I didn't want anyone to feel like they couldn't participate in this book. Anyone who was a person of color, at least, Because of their skill level or because their aesthetic was different, because they used acrylic yarn. Let's be honest, like that's a big thing in the knitting community. So I wanted to make sure I was including all different folks from all different walks of life.
0: For me, it was really powerful to read the book and hear from so many people who are crafters whose goals are so different everywhere from like, Comfort and joy and connection, which is a huge theme in the book, to pursuing this as a career. and there is space for everyone. and that for whatever reason, that was just part of the book that I really appreciated so much because um, I think we put value on art or design or craft. It's this is a very capitalist notion, but like mm-hmm. the value of it is in relationship to how much you can sell it or you know how marketable it is versus all the other reasons that we make and create, right, for community, for connection, for our own, like, emotional, intellectual stimulation and joy, right? I I just really appreciated that. So one of the first things you did as you began working on the book is you developed a survey for women of color and eventually non-binary folks mm-hmm. of color to respond to so you could learn as much as possible about both similar and different experiences that folks were having. So tell us about that survey and the kinds of questions you asked and the kind of information you wanted to glean. Because I can imagine, and I know that this is true because we text like every day and (laughs) your survey was a big topic of our discussion. I can imagine a lot of work and thought went into that survey because, you know, women of color are not a monolith. So how did you approach that?
1: One of my biggest influences for this book, and I, I love naming my influences because I think it's really important to, ex- to acknowledge that we do not exist in a vacuum, was women in clothes. And I can't remember if you gave that to me or if Sonia gave it to me. And I love the format of women in clothes, which was a series of questions online that people answered that then became a book. There was a survey and it just asked women about their relationship to their clothing, to their body, to their fashion sense. And I felt that that was really, really effective. But it was also very everyday, because you wear clothes every day, for the most part. So many of those questions were just really kind of easy, but thought provoking questions. And so I wanted to create something similar for the book, and instead of trying to direct the answers, to allow the answers to flow from folks. And so I had a list of questions that I wanted to ask. And then I put together a little committee of friends and acquaintances who would help me vet them and add them. These were also all women of color. And the reason I did that was because I have blind spots. I don't necessarily know what my blind spots are.
0: So they helped. wouldn't be blind spots if they, if you knew what Exactly.
1: You were. <laughs> and I absolutely needed someone to check me, you know. And so I think we had five or six people who jumped in there and really helped form the questions and also things like, what is your race and ethnicity, right? Like there were just a few categories. And then I think it was Ebony who said, we got to break down Asian. Like Asian can't be its own (laughs) category. It needs to be a bunch of separate categories. And Sonia sent me, I think, the survey for the San Francisco Public School District of how people identify race and ethnicity. And so we worked on that. And as you know, Lisa, like coming up with choices for a question like that is actually way more work than other people might think it is, that a lot of thought goes into those categories. And even like we didn't include Central Asian and someone completed the survey and checked other and said Central Asian. And I was like, I'm going to go back and enter in Central Asian, <laughs> you know, like it's fine. I'm. It's this process of feedback and iteration and it's totally OK. I think it was really important to acknowledge that we don't know everything and we make mistakes and we can fix them as we go along. And then I sent out the survey. It was just a Google Form or Google Doc or whatever, and I sent a link to it thinking I would get a couple, you know, maybe a 100 responses overall. and I think I had 120 responses by the end of that first weekend, and then got up to close to 300. I think we actually did have 300, but I had to eliminate a number of them because white women responded to
0: the survey. not surprising.
1: (laughs) And the reason we included white as an option in the responses to race and ethnicity, but we did that specifically because many people are multiracial and have a white parent or grandparent and claim that as part of their identity and that's fine. But when I went down the list and I saw that like there were a dozen- people who checked white only. I was like, ah. (laughs) So the response was overwhelming. And I was really surprised by how many people responded, not because I didn't think that we were all out there, but because I didn't think people were going to want to sit and respond to a survey. But what turned out happening was people have not been asked these stories. They're not the ones who are being profiled in magazines and on blogs. And so they had lots of stuff to talk about because nobody had ever asked them and they were happy to share. And I was also really thrilled to read the responses. You know that I was in tears reading the responses because so many
0: of them were so beautiful and thoughtful. Yeah, I remember that. Give us a flavor of, you know, obviously people buy your book and I will link to it in the show notes, but the survey is actually in the book. Mm -hmm. Um, But give us a flavor of the kinds of things you wanted to ask or you felt it was important to ask.
1: Oh, so tell me how you learned your craft. And that revealed so many fun stories of people learning from their grandmother or their mother. One respondent's mother taught her how to crochet because it required her to be quiet while she was crocheting. (laughs) A lot of stories like my grandma taught me how to sew or taught me how to knit so that she could get some quiet. That was, I really wanted to know that. I wanted to know how people had learned their craft when have you felt like an other in the context of your craft? I kind of had a baseline idea of what the responses would be. I wasn't wrong, but there were other things that happened in there that were thrown in there too. And is your work different or similar to that of your family members, if your other family members participate
0: in this too? Because I also
1: think that that's fascinating.
0: One other thing I want to mention is that each chapter starts with survey responses. So why did that feel like an important way to frame each chapter? Or are the chapters sort of like, did you choose sort of what you were going to focus on based on the survey responses?
1: Hmm. I actually chose what I was going to focus on based on the survey responses. For example, there were some chapters where I knew that my experience was probably going to be close to... Universal within the survey responses. So, whenever you felt like an other in the context of your craft, I knew I was going to write about that regardless. But the survey responses only emphasized or reinforced the direction that I was already going in. There were definitely some surprises too. But for the most part, the survey responses dictated what I would be writing about.
0: And you led with them because they were such a powerful framing of whatever you were covering in that chapter. Cause I, I know, like, I mean, I personally loved reading the, it was like a flavor of of the responses. I don't think you included every response to every question, but like some powerful responses before you're reading the essays and the interviews. And I thought that was such an interesting choice.
1: That was partly my editor's choice too, because I did want to include all the responses to all the questions, but that was a 500,000 word manuscript. So we had to cut it way down.
0: I remember that conversation too, because you turned in the book and you knew it was way too long and there was a lot of back and forth as there always is when you're making a book with your editor about length. And you finally got there, which it's so painful sometimes to cut stuff because everything when you're writing a book feels important, Mm -hmm. you know? And
1: especially for me, these weren't my own words. These were other people's stories. And I felt like everybody's story was valid and important, but cutting it back forced me to really focus on certain themes and things that came up over and over again. But if it were up to me, I would have just let everybody have at least one quote in the book.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I get that. So I imagine that a lot of what you learned through the survey and through the essays that you commissioned and interviews that you did with folks, I know that a lot of what you, you know, gathered was very affirming for you. And you probably felt an amazing sense of like kinship with the folks in the book. But I'm also curious... Was there any theme that surprised you when you were done making the book or anything that was surprising to you?
1: Yes. And I wrote about it in the book, but the number of people who learned how to sew Barbie clothes is the first thing that they sewed because I wasn't allowed to have a Barbie when I was a child. My parents were very much against it because... She was a skinny blonde woman with really large boobs. And my parents just thought that was an appropriate toy for a black and Filipino child to play with. (laughs) And total respect for that. Like I wanted a Barbie more than anything because Barbie was banned in the house. So the Barbie response was the big one. And also what I really enjoyed and what I was surprised by because my parents did not teach me how to knit or crochet or even sew because they couldn't do those things themselves (gasps) were the number of people who learned how to knit and crochet because their parents wanted them to be quiet. <laughs> I was a kid who was always reading or always like building things. So I had lots of time where I was just like on my own doing stuff. And I forget sometimes that
0: not every child was like that. <laughs> so funny. So one of the things that also struck me, and we we touched on this earlier, but I want, I want to talk about this a little bit more. So there's an awful lot of joy in the book. So talk about why it felt important for you to reflect, you know, of course, not just struggle, which is an important part of everyone's story, but what craft has given the hearts and minds of women of color.
1: Mm -hmm. I think joy is just central to the practice of craft, especially crafts that were traditionally practiced in groups. So it was a way of sharing and communicating and being in community with others with your peers with your family with your friends i think joy is at the heart of that the other reason is i think that in many ways i say this as an american although i am also a person of color i'm a black woman we are addicted to trauma porn that we love the stories you know, I say love in quotes, but what gets shared are stories of struggle, of difficulty, of murder, of death, of beatings. And that in many ways is the predominant story about being a person of color in this country. As a Black woman, I know that this is not the only way. These are not the only things that we experience that there actually is quite a bit of joy in our lives, in our community, in our craft, in the things that we make, in the way that we live. But if you were to look at it from the media lens, you would think that our lives are full of hardship and struggle. And I wanted to reflect that joy back to the people who are interviewed and profiled in this book. I wanted to reflect that joy back to people of color who engage in these crafts, or maybe who don't engage in these crafts. And my secondary audience, not my primary audience, is white women. And I also wanted them, if they picked up the book, to understand that our lives and our experiences and our work and our craft is not only about struggle, that joy and connection are really the guiding lights in what we do and how we live.
0: Okay, last question. Where do you see women of color and non-binary folks of color in craft heading now? Like, what is emerging in the community?
1: We're here. (laughs) We've been here. (laughs) I hope that this makes space for new folks or the folks who haven't always been included. I think about... One of the early reactions to my book by a white woman was the G's Bend quilters meant so much to me. And when I learned of their work, it really changed how I saw women of color and craft. And I thought, well, they're kind of a big deal. And if that's where you started and you stopped, then you're not really doing the work, right? And so I'm hoping... That what's going to happen is that there's just going to be room for the G's Bend ladies and my Auntie Ming and all kinds of people who maybe I, I don't know to have a space in this community, this larger craft community, and to have a voice and to be seen if that's what they want.
0: Jen, thank you so much for joining (laughs) me today and talking about this very important book. And I love what you just said. It's a perfect way to wrap up this conversation. I'm so honored to have you in my life and I really appreciate you and all that you do. You're such an amazing leader. So I will link to your website, your shop, your Instagram, and the book, of course, in the show notes. And I'm also going to link to Women in Clothes, which is the book that you mentioned, which I think people will also enjoy. That way people can find you and your book and your beautiful work. Thank you again. Thank you, Lisa. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Editing of this podcast by the amazing Gabe Garber. Thanks to Nick Lambert for the original music and to my amazing team at the Coloop Podcast Network. Please subscribe to the Lisa Congdon Sessions on Apple Podcasts. And if you enjoy what you hear, leave me a review. You can follow me on social media at Lisa Congdon and at the Lisa Congdon Sessions. I hope you'll join me for future episodes. Have a magical day, everyone.